one. And we are recording with Dr. Peter Bregan, who you were my last episode of last year. And uh, for today's episode, this is episode 1063 on Sunday, January 22nd, 2023 at 4.08 p.m. Eastern time to discuss your book, The Heart of Being Helpful, which you had mentioned during our last podcast. And so I got it and I read it. And it is, I mean, it really is beautiful. That's the only way I can describe it is it's very, it's soft and it's loving and it's extremely vulnerable just from your position. It is a, there's sort of a meta theme to it. The entire thing is about being vulnerable and, you know, observing and analyzing yourself before you observe and analyze others. And then the very act in which you wrote the book or the very manner in which you wrote the book is itself an exhibition of vulnerability, which I thought was beautiful. But before we get into it, Dr. Bregan, please introduce yourself to all the new listeners. <laughs> well, I'm Peter R. Bregan, MD. <clears throat> and right now, um, I'm immersed in fighting for the freedom of America and hence the world, which seems like a far cry from writing uh, with all my heart uh, the uh, a book from a few years ago, The Heart of Being Helpful. It's very sweet that you like that book so much. It is my favorite book, I think, but it is not what I'm known for. I'm known for taking on giants by myself, building coalitions. And uh, in that way, back in the early 70s, I stopped uh, a massive return of psychiatric brain mutilation. I'm a psychiatrist and I uh, became the first psychiatrist to ever take on that issue. The first psychiatrist to ever testify in court against the worst lobotomist of all time, Walter Freeman who used to do the famous ice pick lobotomies mm -hmm. where he would slip it around the, the uh, eyeball of the person and tap it through the very, uh, uh, I guess it's shallow bone that's back there. It's a small, uh, uh, thin bone into the frontal lobes and swish around in the magic of being human. That's what it was. Because once he withdrew that pick, the person was no longer capable of the kinds of thinking and feeling we're doing today and the kind of conversation basically destroyed the expression of the individual's humanity. And it's in a second. It's the minute that area is crushed. And um, that's the prefrontal cortex, it's called. And um, I never did get to testify against him because he died before that. But at least you knew somebody was holding him responsible at the end. And I've uh, done the same thing with electroshock. The first doctor to ever actually win uh, as an expert, uh, testify in a winning shock suit against electroshock doctor. They're so slick and they come in with so much backup and professors that they, they can make up such terrible lies. I've had to become a real, never thought I would be doing this when I was a freshman in college, let's say, but to become a real expert on brain damage and how to describe it and how to communicate to people about that damage. Um, and so that has uh, helped me a great deal there. In fact, just back in 2019, we actually had um, a summary judgment uh, brought against uh, the lawyer um, and the client who have been damaged by shock treatment, a case against a, a uh, electroshock company. 
and uh, Somatics Inc. And um, they said there was not enough evidence for brain damage to even go to trial. And uh, a shock treatment actually causes instantly, the first time, a deep coma. First, mm -hmm. it knocks you into unconsciousness, causes a deep coma. The person arises out of that coma, um, sometimes takes quite a while, could take 30 minutes, could take a few minutes, in a complete concussed state, not knowing where they are, who they are, what's happened to them. It's worse than, than something that would probably end the career of a football player and eventually even a boxer. And they may do that to you uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 times, as many as they can get away with. Pays very, very well. The routine is usually 12 or 15. And instead of um, uh, making the shock safer with time, as they claim they've made it all safer, you know, I looked at the machines and they actually set the machines now so that they have to give eight to 10 times more than the older machines, that, that there's no option to do it like the safer older machines. You know, they have, you have to give 800 to 900 milliamps of electricity. With the old machines, you could give 80. So, I mean, 80 versus, uh, you know, 800, that's 10 right there in that particular comparison. And uh, the, the judge agreed with my report, said that um, that uh, there was plenty of reason. There was reason to go to court with this and let a jury decide who was right. And they immediately settled. I don't know for how much. Uh, the drug company settled, immediately informed the FDA that they had reports of shock treatment, which they had never sent in, of shock treatment causing mem severe memory loss and um, other, other cognitive problems, and then warned doctors that it was up to them to knowingly give informed consent to the patients. Like in a week, all that unfolded. But then now people who have been watching COVID will maybe understand just how bad these things are within a few days the fda for the first time in history then approved shock machines instantly to their defense whereas they had uh, been trying to get them approved for decades but uh, there were protests and demands for testing and but without any testing just like with the we're seeing with the um vaccines now without any testing the fda went ahead and uh they uh, they approved uh, the shock machines and it's safe and effective when they're literally destroying the brain every time the electricity is passed through the brain it's insufficient strength to knock the patient instantly unconscious into a coma arising with severe concussive symptoms so i got hardened and maybe also developed a lot of understanding about how bad medicine can behave and um, how bad psychiatry can behave. And um, then when I started looking at COVID-19 and Ginger and I wrote what many people consider to be the basic Bible on understanding COVID-19, mm -hmm. called COVID-19 and the global predators, we are the prey, 650 pages, but a well-made book, so it's readable and um, a huge chronology at the end so you can follow things in, in order. So we were prepared. We weren't prepared for how ugly it was behind COVID. So it got just a new level of understanding. 
which I had a considerable amount of beforehand and Ginger sharing my life with me, had an experience in, um, in uh, you know, when I'm a medical expert against the drug companies and, and involving the F FDA and other government agencies. Um, and then Ginger led another of our projects, discovered that they were doing um, eugenics involving uh, black children and young black people. They were setting up, a, and some Hispanics, they were setting up a massive interagency program in 1994 to investigate the biologic and genetic reasons why little black children grew up to be so violent. Now that's eugenics. That's, that's like you talk about Jews in Nazi Germany and blacks in Nazi Germany. They exterminated African-Americans as well. Um, so uh, we actually got that whole program canceled eventually, not without a lot of fighting. And eventually the government let go of the lead, uh, lead psychiatrist. He was the most powerful psychiatrist in the world at the time, Fred Goodwin. The government let him go um, because what he did was so egregious that it empowered some of the people inside to say, well, you know, this man should go. But he was going to just go skip all the psycho psychosocial and economic and family issues that might distress inner city children and uh, the drug dealing and the flooding of drugs in those communities to help destroy them, not just by the taking them, but by the selling them. All the big issues ignored. No, it's uh, the gene in some little black child. They were going to even try to study the children in utero. So we, we've got a bit of background in all of this and we got deeply into it. I do this kind of work. It feels like out of commandment rather than out of choice, if that makes any sense mm -hmm. to you. When um, I went into private practice and, and um, after I, uh, I was at the National Institute of Mental Health, it was the pinnacle of a young career after I finished my all my training, some of it at Harvard. I went to, <clears throat> I became a Lieutenant Commander in US Public Health Service and at the National Institutes of Mental Health. And um, uh, I, I began to fully realize that there was no place for me in the mood psychiatry. I wrote a book about that, one of my best books, Toxic Psychiatry. And um, how that just, uh, you know, it, it was all corrupt now. It was all under drug company. You were taking human experiences of misery and suffering and sadness and anxiety and making it biologic. And uh, in, in itself, uh, that entails destroying a human being to convince them of that. This takes away their free will, their ability to work on their issues, their ability to be vulnerable to their feelings. Instead, they're taught to suppress their feelings with drugs. So there wasn't any place for me. And I was just going to do therapy and write books like um, The Heart of Being Helpful. <laughs> that was my goal. And uh, But when I heard lobotomy was coming back, that the thing I started with, I, and I especially learned they were operating on little black children in Mississippi, Jackson University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I just felt commanded to... to Somebody had to stop this. I couldn't sit back. I know knew about lobotomy. I knew what it was like. No one had ever stood up against these guys. And now they're marshalling to come back with new technologies, you know, stimulating the brain of children, 
putting holes in their brains with overheated electrodes and things like that. But underneath all of that work, and now COVID-19, Ginger and I are on the cutting edge of looking at what's uh, been behind COVID-19 and what's uh, much more going to is behind the whole globalist assault on the world. There's a globalist assault on that American flag behind you. It's put there so importantly. They want to destroy America's pride. They want to destroy patriotism. They want to destroy God. They want to destroy country so they can be globalists and run things. So there are no accidents in how horribly the government's behaving. It's not behaving horribly because Joe Biden is uh, mentally compromised. It's uh, he's behaving horribly because he's being led by quite intelligent people. Probably Obama's right in there manipulating things behind the scene. Um, maybe Biden's wife. I mean, it's hard to get a handle on it. This is speculation, hard to get a handle on who's pulling Joe's strings, but it ain't Joe. And these things like opening the border, destroying energy independence by cutting the pipeline and so on. These are all aims at destroying America and uh, so that the globalists can run free. And uh, we're really documenting that more and more. We do a good job in the book, I think, but we're really into it more and more now. And um, so where does all this fit in with the heart of being helpful? One of the things that, that I came up with in my working with patients, um, maybe help a lot. When I started working with patients, I actually began in college. I was running a big Harvard volunteer program as a college student. And we showed we could get patients out of the hospital if we were given individual patients, much to the shock of the psychiatric profession and became quite noteworthy. We were written up in those days, a lot of different good places. In those days, uh, national magazines, um, the last big mental health study to come out of the government that was in favor of psychosocial interventions rather than drugs, shock, and lobotomy. Um, and I thought there'd be a place in psychiatry for my continuing with this because I was doing it within psychiatry as a volunteer leader and knew, got to know all the professors, not all, many professors at Harvard. They wrote recommendations for me into medical school. Um, before I even had completed uh, the uh, requirements, which I was cramming in. And um, I literally got accepted without even finishing the, until I, you know, I did finish them, but without even finishing the basic requirements because of that volunteer work. And um, there was a place, but by the time I'm leaving, the National Institute of Mental Health, I had learned enough to know that it was all controlled now by the drug companies. Mottos were taught to, to, to psychiatrists such as you can't talk to schizophrenia. I'd been talking to people labeled schizophrenic when I was 18 years old on the wards. And the boy, they knew that I was there and they, they loved my visiting and the other volunteers visiting and it meant a lot to them. And and we got a lot of these patients into much better places in the hospital. We really helped them. Um, so I was torn from the beginning because what I was doing full time was with being a therapist. And all of this, I, I had long hair and uh, uh, I wanted to, I missed the 60s. I just missed the 60s. You know, <laughs> I, I finished my medical training, psychiatric training in six, 
in 66 and then I finished at the National Institute of Mental Health in 68 and so I had I wore jeans and had long hair and I'd go on TV to talk about lobotomy and they'd be more interested in how I was dressed and what did my patients think of my long hair so I went out and bought in those days now think about it since 19 to be 1972, I went out and I bought a $500 camel wool suit, camel hair suit. <laughs> I don't know what that yeah. would cost now to get even play get. The part. <laughs> and I got a haircut. And the next TV show I went on with was with an impeccably dressed a Chinese show host in Los Angeles. They used to have very great local TV. We don't have that anymore. They'd have great shows out of LA and New York that were at least good by standards. Um, and uh, he comes up to me and he says, uh, instead of, you know, commenting on my long hair and my jeans, he says, um, who's your tailor? <laughs> <laughs> so I realized it really does make a difference. Oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, it felt fake, but, you know, but it made a difference. So it's the uh, job done. Guess the job's done. It's a uniform. So yeah. I began now, of course, I'm going a little backward. I don't even have on a, 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 with you a jacket, which I almost always wear. I decided that you would uh, be more comfortable probably with me, and I'd be more comfortable I, if I didn't put I on am. my hey, jacket. I, I keep a fuzzy blanket, and I wear slippers. I keep it very laid back. <laughs> um, but one of the things I discovered, this is very interesting, and it's something to really think about now that we're fighting for our rights and liberties in America. I decided during my training, and some of it had to do with, with a psychiatrist that I worked with, who was one of my professors named Thomas Zoss, S-Z-A-S-Z. Zoss had, he's gone. I had no idea about love, no idea about compassion, but he knew freedom. Like a lot of the libertarians, he knew freedom in part because he was free of, of a deep attachment, I think. Um, so... And I was feeling very libertarian at the time. Oh, I learned to be at the time. I'm much more conservative now, uh, much more into attachment, um, <laughs> to love. But um, um, I, I started my practice and I would tell my patients, I don't do things that other psychiatrists do. So you can be at peace here. You can be free and, and be yourself. I never commit anybody. And I would say I probably could be held responsible for that if you did something harmful and I didn't I didn't commit you, but um, I won't do it. I won't. I don't believe I can help a person who I can whose life is in my hands, whom I can control. So if you come in and tell me you're suicidal, uh, I am not going to commit you. I'm not going to give you a drug either, because I don't think that we should handle our worst fears and anxieties by um, by drugging them or, ourselves. So it's going to be just a conversation. The only exception to that is, and there's a law that I don't disagree with, which is if I, if I feel you're about to really kill somebody, I'll let you know that we got to work it out by the end of the session, and you have to give me the gun, mm -hmm. which I've had, had in my experience, yeah. literally in my therapy, you'll have to give me the gun, or I got to report you. Yeah. And um, now, I mean, there are risks there, I suppose, and I hadn't even thought about it. I, I, I talk about an experience like that, but, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not completely, you know, disclosing him or me. 
sure. but it's the experience. And I ne never thought until this moment, talking to you, Tommy, that he could have just shot me and left. Sure. Um, I wasn't even thinking that. I was just thinking, what am I going to do to help this man not ruin his life and my life indirectly by shooting somebody? Funny, I never thought he would shoot me until this moment. That was certainly an alternative, wasn't it? Well, well, I guess there's almost like a <laughs> there's almost a cutting your losses. Like the second this guy is in a room with you with a gun, I think your brain might almost subconsciously just take that and throw it out the window because. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's no point in stressing over it. So it's like <laughs> once you're on the plane, like if the plane's going down, it's going down. So just don't mm -hmm. even address that. Address the next thing. <clears throat> well, that, that's a wonderful analogy. And it fits with one of the themes of the heart of being helpful. And this show is about the heart of being helpful. And folks, it's, I think, a treat for me and maybe for you because I probably have not just talked about the heart of being helpful in years, but it is, I think, one of the most deeply fulfilling books you can read. And you learn about me, about ginger, about relationships with animals that I've watched mm -hmm. ginger have that are so deep that you just can't believe it. Um, and that's continued to happen. Um, I'll give you a, a little story about bonding with ginger. It was, we're going to be all over the place. Yeah, who cares? Be, it's yeah. going to be the real Peter Bregan. Sort yeah, of no, that's, yeah, that's what this podcast, go. if this podcast ever stays in a, in a square of agendas and talking points, something has gone terribly wrong. You just, <laughs> it's a bottle rocket with no guidance, light it and just see where it goes. Where, well, all right, where it goes. We had law, we always had Shetland sheepdogs. Ginger had been raised with Shetland sheepdogs. Ginger had partly lived in the, backyard gated area of the Shetland Sheepdogs <laughs> and um, uh, and now as we got a bit older about four years ago um, I'm 86 years old folks Ginger's 70 going to be 72 in February um, and then not long after I'll be 87 good god <laughs> and um she decided she wanted a smaller dog. She was a little embarrassed about becoming an old lady with a little dog in her lap, but she was thinking that she really could understand that and she wanted a little dog. And she showed me some dogs that that were available and I looked at one and it was um, a, um, oh my God, the really cutest little dog of all, Yorkie. It's a Yorkie. Yeah, my, my aunt has three Yorkies. My aunt three Yorkies. They little okay. orchids. Yeah, they run. They 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 orbit my uncle like moons. It's funny. They just they're constantly within like a six foot circumference of him. Well, that's what my story's about. Okay, that's so interesting. All right, that is so interesting. So Ginger was going to go and look at another dog first, and I said, "No, this Yorkie. Look at this face. We got to go look at this Yorkie." So we go, and this poor Yorkie is living amid a woman who's getting divorced. No, not divorced. She's separate. No, not even separated. Her husband's moved out of town to work, and she's got all these dogs in her mother's house, and they consist of a very large, uh, I don't remember, I think they were, not, not like Airedales, but, you know, really big and potentially, you could think, nasty dogs, and, and these little York, Yorkies. And... um and it's very chaotic and it's hard to understand how that little kid would be get, getting much attention. And she hadn't been. As we got home, we realized she was a kind of a rescue, really, an expensive rescue. And um, Ginger likes to drive and she drove us home and we had a two hour drive. And I'm 
holding the little Yorkie. And I'm very concerned about holding the little Yorkie all the way home because I'm afraid the little Yorkie will bond with me. And this has got to be Ginger's dog. Mm-hmm. I had a Sheltie. They don't bond so hard with one person, but who definitely, you know, thought of me as maybe the maybe the most important person. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not, but possibly. Um, but this little Yorkie is is in my lap the whole way. And um, you know, kind of looking at Ginger and kind of trying to relax. We get home, we get into the house, and we sit down in the living room. And I, um, I sit on on a, on the couch, and Ginger sits for some reason across from me in a chair. And we're there about in two minutes, and I look up, and the Yorkie has begun to circle Ginger. So I say, Ginger, look what's going on. And I count, and the Yorkie makes 20 circles around Ginger's chair. And I don't mean five feet away. I mean as close pretty much as she could get to the chair. And looking up at me, once every turn glances at me as if I'm, are you getting the message or whatever? Watching this? (laughs) You're watching this and does it. And then Ginger picks her up. And it was stunning. I've seen other things with animals, and there's little stories about them in the book, part of being helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, it was either later that day, probably the next day, that Ginger then goes out to shop for a few minutes. The Yorkie comes over to me, sits down on the floor, you know, on upright sitting, looking at me and begins to piteously wail. Bring her back, bring her back, bring her back, wailing till Ginger gets home. I actually recorded it on, <laughs> on the, my phone. And um, I joke, but it's pretty close to true that that's how I felt when I met Ginger. I mean, that I understand it perfectly. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, so the book is about, and I still haven't gotten to the connections to freedom. So the book is is about the way I do therapy and still do it. Almost very little has changed in how I do therapy other than I'm more verbal, more confident. It's more of a conversation, but I still work a lot with feelings. And um, and I have more wisdom. It's so clear that I have more wisdom after all these years. And I can give people helpful tips within a, an hour easily, almost always, because I've just been doing this for so long. But... I was felt like I was a progressive at the time. And it was, it was somewhere around in there, you know, with John Kerry, who's so important in the current administration. And who was such an elitist. He just went to um, Davos and he talked mm-hmm. about the special people. Who knew that he'd ever be one of these special people who would be planning the future of the world? I mean, they just got, well, well, he, you know, he got me to help me become this virulent progressive and anti-war and everything because he came back from Vietnam and basically Mm -hmm. said that American soldiers are murdering people and they're bloodthirsty and they're rapists. And uh, no, turns out he never saw anything like that happen. Um, And and I, so I was very felt very progressive at that time. But I noticed something about myself, which was that I wanted to be utterly responsible for myself. I'd made these decisions very young. 
and I wanted to be um, free of compulsion. And so that is the format of what I did as a therapist. It began with the sovereignty of the person who came to see me. And I also had concluded from my childhood that people really needed love, but it was very hard to find. And I put together this idea that, that um, what really is the core of, of healing is feeling loved and love, loving, and that what we need to thrive in that way is a real sense of personal sovereignty and as much freedom as possible to choose our way of life, to choose what we love to do, to choose what we believe religiously, to be free. I didn't know that other people had figured this out. My education at Harvard didn't get way much into the Constitution of the United States or anything even back then. You didn't get it very deeply. Um, I got some inkling of it that I barely remember from one good solid history of America course I took. I was originally an American history and literature major. And um, <clears throat> it was just in me that I wanted to be free of all things. I never put up with bullying. I risked, took big risks as a child. Uh, I was kind of well-known. I was president of the class most years, and I was also an athlete, and I was, I was a pretty, I was a good student. I wasn't number one, but I was a good student. So there were people who wanted to pick on me and, um, you know, bully me, sometimes just during football practices. And I never ever wanted to back down i wanted to be free free of bullying and i protected friends and stuff like that it was just in me now i think that it was just given to me that's how i view it now it's not genetics it's just given somehow by something beyond anything we understand <laughs> that we call god just gave me this and said you know build it kid and um the uh, when I when I was doing my practice, I did not know that I was building essentially a, a libertarian, conservative kind of viewpoint mm. that I shared with my clients. I'd never met a conservative in my whole life, not at Harvard. We actually knew in the entire freshman class there was this conservative. This is this thing's been going on of excluding conservatives. Forever, because we're talking about, I was at Harvard 54 to 58. It's a long oh, wow. time ago. Um, and um, when I began to um, to do the work of um, taking on these psychosurgeons, I, and I, now I had my suit, and I did things I'd never dreamed of doing. I met congressmen and senators. You can't really do that much anymore, what I did then. And I talked to them about psychosurgery, and I found that the most people who were listening to me were conservatives, people that I grew up thinking I was supposed to hate, liberal Jewish background, not very political, but it was that was imbued in young, sure. young Jewish kids. We thought that Hitler was a conservative. We didn't know whether he was a socialist. Yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a right winger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, 
Um, then you've got him snorting. I'm so relaxed. I don't think I've ever snorted on t- television. <laughs> no, it, it is. It is kind of funny. Yeah, you are born, I guess, born to hate him. Who, yeah, what, who else would be born to hate him more than, yeah, a young Jewish guy? It's just, you yeah, know, during the Holocaust. Yeah, you know, it's driving the right side of the road, uh, you know, make your bed when you get up and hate, hate Hitler. Just kind of some daily to do's. Well, and connect him to conservatives because that's well, what sure. the liberals taught us. Yeah. These yeah. were right wingers. Hitler was the right winger. Stalin was a left winger. No, they're both collectivist abusers. They're both they're both they're both demons who abhor free will and want to destroy anything in their way. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You, no, no one's ever been in a gulag or a concentration camp and gone. Well, at least he's not a right wing. Like no, <laughs> when you're starving to death and your family's oh, worked God. to death in front of you, you don't care if it's yeah. Stalin or Hitler. It's yeah. sorry, but as as you were right, or the niceties between the fight between Hitler and the communists <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, no. When you can see your own rib cage because you haven't eaten in a week, I don't think you're yeah. too concerned about the ideology of your oppressor. Um, so uh, you know, here I am. I'm talking to a conservative senator, um, Jay Glenn Bell Jr. was his name, and I've gotten in because um, his uh, assistant thought what I was saying on the phone was important. Man's never met me. He's never heard of lobotomy, and his constituency is the National Institutes of Health because it's Maryland. And mm-hmm. Bethesda, Maryland is the heart of the health gulag or the health, yeah. the health deep state, the health deep state. And so that's his constituents. And I explained to him what psychosurgery is. And he looks at me after three minutes and says, um, that's immoral. It's immoral to do that. I will do whatever I can to help you. And he did. And I thought, this man's so reasonable to talk to, but he's a conservative. <laughs> then I met the the head of the founder of the American Conservative Union, David Keene. And I expressed to him, because he's another person who just, you know, when I started talking, he found me. And sure. I, I wouldn't, couldn't have found him. I didn't have an American conservative. You know, any kidding? Yeah. It's not a den of evil. And Dave and I were talking over lunch. He probably took, invited me to lunch. I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> You're not inviting him to lunch. Yeah. Um, and um, he says, well, what do you believe? He, I said, well, I'm a, I'm a liberal. He said, yeah, well, tell me what you believe. He said, I believe in individual free and personal responsibility. He said, you're not a liberal. You're a libertarian. I'm a conservative, but you're probably a libertarian. Let me introduce you to some. Hmm. And he introduced me to people, and I got connections all the way up to the assistant to the president from these people. And um, <laughs> he introduced me to Bob Kephart, who was the owner, creator, and publisher of um, the big conservative newspaper in D.C., um, it's probably just online now. I forget what the name of it. So long ago, those people are not around very much anymore. I don't think they're around. Um, so I began to 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 realize that there was a whole freedom philosophy and politic, and it wasn't liberalism somehow. It was more like liberalism then. Now liberalism is is pretty much violent communism. I mean, it's just very very close to that, and. Um, 
I began to just think more and more about the therapy and politics all being one thing, hmm. understandable as a whole, and that I was creating, I wrote about this back in the 70s, that in therapy, you, you create a mini utopia in which two people are protected from each other by ethics and protected from the world by privacy. And you get to talk about in a freedom setting about life and how to live your life. What are the traumas that affected you? What are the aspirations that you have? How do you want to live? What is love? Do people actually love each other? What's your experience with it? And um, then eventually I began to work with couples and just help them love each other without coercing. So the first thing you do is you stop coercing each other by pointing out what they're doing and ask them if they'd like to experiment giving all that stuff up. <laughs> and almost everybody who comes to me at least says, well, we never really quite realized that, but gee, yeah. Yeah, I mean, am I actually bullying you, Tim? Yeah, it makes me feel awful when you sneer at me about what I say. And um, am I bullying you? Are you kidding, honey? When you glare at me, my father used to hit me after glaring at me. And you have these amazing conversations and yeah. people let go of coercion and get what they want through loving one another. And what you get from loving each other is so far beyond what you get by bullying each other that it's another world. Well, you can almost see the direct correlation then to the pursuit of freedom versus an author authoritarian guiding hand. Yeah, you can, exactly. You can enforce morality by gunpoint, or as you saw in your situation, you didn't have, and, and then literally at gunpoint. <laughs> You just sat there and you said, well, you, you got to give that to me, right? And you put it aside. At the, at the end of the session, toward the end. Said, yeah. Give and me then, the yeah, come on, you got you to, I don't have one. You're making me, you know, how would you feel if I pulled out a gun? You'd, you'd probably be uncomfortable too. But there is that, there's almost, you could, that almost was the most beautiful manifestation of what you're discussing is it physically came out in the form of a revolver of, yeah. hey, like we're not on an even playing field. I may be making you feel uncomfortable by pointing out the gun. Well, you're making me feel uncomfortable because <laughs> I don't have a gun or a, or a bulletproof vest. And coming at something from a form of autonomous, consciously chosen vulnerability will always outweigh something that is surrendered under the illusion of choice uh, hey if, if if the police have me surrounded yeah i'm choosing to get down on my hands and knees uh, no you're not you you have one choice right it's so there is something about that that i think it is kind of ironic that you saw in the realest form is that coming from that place of of surrender and freedom is far more powerful than any amount of force. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, no. It's just, it's very good to talk about with you. I just happened to come on that. I decided to look at the book before we talked. Sure. And the chapter I came upon was, that... was the chapter where the, my client, patient, I like to call them clients. I, I've had to train myself to call them patients when I testify in court. 
um, be otherwise just doesn't look right because I'm a medical doctor. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> not a psychologist or somebody else. But um, it gave me chills reading that and thinking about it um, and thinking about all that got saved in that hour, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, and the work he did, I mean, he did it within one hour. He did an enormous amount of work on why he had to murder somebody that, uh, you know, had to slept with his wife. And, uh, and he actually looked at himself and said, and she, she did that. She did that because I've done it. I've been unfaithful. And to just go on that whole long strain down to the rage we have at others has so much to do with ourselves. It's unbelievable. Um, that's been so helpful to me as a reformer because I could not do the kind of extreme reform work that we're doing now. It's it's in some ways more extreme than ever before. We're under a kind of personal attack, and which I, I don't want to talk about, but people can find it on the internet. But um, then more, much more personal than when we were, you know, when our work was causing people to lose the practices of psychosurgery and their you know, they're being ahead of the, the biggest mental health agency in the world and um, things like that. And one of the things that I continually come back to is it's not about anger and hate. And can, the other person be, can be full of anger and, and hate, but it's not about that for us. And if you look at that part of yourself and you can just let it go, I began really letting it go. I was your typical angry young man, you know, doing the reform work. And it was actually in a personal relationship <clears throat> that was a, I was a, going out with a woman who was in AA. And um, so I went to a couple of AA meetings and I was just feeling so much anger at one point and I'm walking by myself. And I remembered that in AA, you give up your alcoholism to God. You give up your addiction to God, and I thought to myself, I don't, I don't want this hate and anger. And anger is like an addiction. And I said, God, if you need somebody to be angry at you, would you handle it yourself? I can't do it and do the work that I'm supposed to do. And um, of course, it didn't change in a second, but it came pretty close to beginning to change in a second anyway. And I've tried to work on that principle throughout my life that my being angry and even wanting to hurt the people whom I'm trying to stop. Hmm. And I talk about that in the book. I realized mm -hmm. I give an example of, um, um, of, uh, I had to sue somebody back in the seventies who was really libeling and slandering me. And I did so, and he settled for a large amount of money, large enough amount of money for me to buy a lake house back in the seventies. Um, and, um, in, while I was suing him, our attorney sent him on Christmas day, you know, just, you know, sticking it to him, a, uh, an order freezing his assets until the end of the suit. And I got a copy because I was the person bringing the suit. 
he hadn't told me he was doing this, the attorney. And I thought I was being sued by somebody and I couldn't, you know, I'm just looking at this piece. Yeah, of yeah just first glance. And my heart sank. And when I realized what it was, uh, I said to myself, I'm just never going to take those kinds of actions against other people. That is not what I'm trying to do. And I hadn't approved of it and I hadn't thought about it. Um, and in my reform work, I've tried to separate myself from inflicting pain on the other person, but sticking as much as I can to what the person's done and why it needs to be stopped. What the agency's done, why it needs to be stopped. What the medical center has done and so on. What the country's doing and why it has to be stopped. And if you can get there, and to the extent that I can get there, I think it's one reason why I can still do this work at the, what people would call an advanced age. <laughs> I, I think that Nonsense. It, I've, what? I've interviewed Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke is, I believe, pushing 89. He's one of four men alive that have walked on the moon. And, he's, and he and he's still i'll i'll try to have him on and i'll email him and he'll be like i can't talk this weekend i'm you know i'm windsurfing in dubai so <laughs> no i would not consider you an advanced age because he's out there he's out he's still a globe trotter sorry tommy i'm going to meet bibby netanyahu this weekend and i'm like of course you are five and a half decades older than me of course you are so no <laughs> I, I will not i will not allow you to make the assertion that you're not advanced aged yeah no and i don't feel that way um but I, I feel more, I, I think I'm actually doing better therapy work than I ever did do. Um, and I mean, if, you know, it should be that way. You got to start sure. young, you start young at things, but presumably you're going to get better and better if it's something like medicine or therapy, um, uh, often art, things like that, that aren't so much how fast is your machinery, but something about yourself spiritually. Yes, it's not. they say mathematicians peak at twenty five or something, yeah. but um, if you're going to do medicine, you you peak, you you just keep growing with your knowledge yeah. and your wisdom. Hopefully, yeah, it's not it's not athletics where you slow down. You yeah, it's something that you can. That's good. I mean, I mean, this is episode one thousand sixty four. I would like to think that I am, I am more wise today than I was yesterday, and mm -hmm. you as the hundreds of episodes kind of just pile up in the rearview mirror, it's what you said earlier. You definitely get more confident. I think if, if this was the 10th episode I'd ever done, I'd be holding up your book. I'd be freaking out. I'd be bringing up chapter names versus when you've done so many of them, mm -hmm. you really just kind of lean back and it's much more you're, you're riding a river yeah. and you're, you don't even, it's very Buddhist medi meditative when you, you don't, you stop labeling things as good or bad. You don't go, oh, the conversation shouldn't go there. You don't say the conversation should go there. You just start to watch it unfold and wherever it goes. And so to you doing therapy, I would imagine you probably are getting closer and closer to if there's an absolute truth as a therapist, not granted, I don't know. I'm not an MD. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know. But I would imagine if there is a if there is a, a pure elemental core, you're probably approaching it. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I I don't want to uh, I don't want to emphasize it so much that way because the person who has to feel pow power is the 
person you're helping. That's one of the most important principles. So while I'm talking all about how I approach therapy, if the person you're working with doesn't feel a growing sense of their own power, then you've really lost it. But that might so be... I just get a little shy about about being too em too emphatic about you know getting to any special place in the universe. I think what I'm getting if I would I'm Jewish, but if I were getting to anything, I would say I'm getting to the the most important principles in Christianity, which is you know you love God and love one another. Well, when and, I say uh... that. <laughs> when, I, when I say you're approaching an elemental core, I don't mean it like uh, you're yeah. approaching perfection. You're approaching Michael yeah, nothing Jordan. Nothing like that, folks. No, no, not not that. But I mean, that level you're approaching could very well be just total vulnerability in letting the patient mm. feel on an even keel with you. Yeah, and that's so, so important. And that's the same thing in marriage. Each per person has to feel on an even keel with the other. Mm. And that uh, the feminists were in part right in, in pointing out patriarchy puts men in a position. And then if you're on top of it, a physician, psychiatrist. Um, and by the way, I don't think psychiatrists are good people to even go to. I'm going to tell people that it's uh, medicine is not the best training for being a therapist. Yeah, you've the best training would be being a therapist and having a lot of good supervision. I mean, that's what matters is learning to talk to people while you're young or or much older, really. Probably better off if you're a woman who already successfully raised five children and just learning, uh, you know, to be there and understand and to try to be helpful and to be yourself, and which is different than most of the training, no? and to uh, you know, try to be there. Um, the great so-called great therapists, I've seen films of them. I've seen them in action when I was younger. I'd go to their meetings and stuff. And they all looked much better at the end of the sessions than their patients did. Mm. And they, they got off on being great therapists. <laughs> <laughs> what? You look bedazzled. No, no. It, 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 I would say that then they're, they're not the great therapists if, if they yeah. feel better than the patients. Well, I think we want to be a good, caring human being who's helpful to other people. Sure. And bring in all that experience and um, as best best we can. And to know our own vulnerability. One of the things I continually try to do when I'm helping somebody, and you get people, you do this with your loved ones, with your friends. I mean, the only thing that's really magically different about therapy is that it's... Um, an agreed upon situation in which there were grave limits on on people uh, having much to do with each other romantically, grave mm -hmm. limits and prohib prohibitions. Mm -hmm. And um and uh and you you're there for a purpose and the purpose is the other person, not you. you you're there to get paid, maybe. Yeah, you you point out in the book that they can't you can't be using them to fulfill yourself. Be it. Yeah sexually be it spiritually ethically morally you can't yeah. they can't be an extension of of you're going look how good of a person i am for helping this person like no you are they are not you are not there to use them as a fulfillment of your own spirit exactly well said and uh, this is how i think a good marriage is a good loving relationship you, if you're a man, you try to actually let go of any vestiges you have of patriarchy. You try never to look threatening or to be threatening. 
to be superior, to be an authority, to joke or tease about the uh, other person in terms of a, um, a gender category, that kind of thing. And uh, if you're a woman, you do your best to be strong and absolutely not cave in to the, to the fear of patriarchy and those things and to stand up for yourself, um, but not get even at the therapist's expense with men. Sure. <laughs> I th I'll, 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 I'll make a note to email it to you. Um, again, Charlie Duke, the astronaut, he wrote a book that I only read maybe a month ago. No, no, two months ago. Um, called Moonwalker, and it's by him and his wife, Dottie Duke. Wow. It's it's only about a four-hour read. Mm -hmm. Just what you're talking about right now and what was in the heart of being helpful, I think you, you would really, really... It, it It's granted he's not a doctor. It's a, just being a, you know, it's it's being a guy growing up in, yeah, the 50s, the 60s, whatever dynamics existed then. And as they age in their marriage, uh, coming to the reaching that highest level of unconditional love and it took mm -hmm. them decades i think you would not obviously I, I don't care if you read it or not it's up to you i'm not trying to give you homework i think you would really really yeah i'll i'll, I'll email it to you if you're thank interested. you and if not don't i mean again i don't it's a, don't worry about it yeah um to i was just thinking throughout the course of this in the heart of being helpful it is about you're, you're coming to these situations and very much so analyzing yourself first. It's less about looking at them and it's about looking at yourself and, and where are your own shortcomings. You know, you have to watch out for these own pitfalls within your own consciousness to be a better caregiver. I'm I'm curious, and it's something that I th I, don't, I I certainly don't know the answer to, how this then applies to what you've done in your life, right? Are taking taking down and facing off and speaking truth to these, just these monoliths of bureaucracy and power and, and you know, evil cunning, as you said earlier about, you know, the government doing X, Y, and Z. This is not, this is not incompetence, just, you know, opening the border, inflation, destroying energy. And it's not incompetence. That's not bureaucratic red tape. That is a malicious machine breaking apart the United States because it's the bulwark against global communism and a technocratic dictatorship. And, and let me just say, that is my book, COVID-19, our book. I do the writing, so I sometimes fall mm. into calling it my book. It's Ginger does a lot of the most brilliant research and thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> it's COVID-19, the global predators, we are the prey. With that, It gives the whole basis for that one sentence you just said yeah, about it's... what they're doing to us. And who is it? I go into who is it? Yeah, you know, and I go into it. The transnational entities worth more money than God, and the United States is the it's the thorn in their side, and uh, the traditional the, United States. The traditionally, right now, the traditional right now United, it's their puppet. Right now, it's not, their not now, not now. The, the traditional <laughs> United States is the revolver, and they are the therapists, but they are not kind-hearted. They're saying, "Give me that revolver," because I want to kill you. Whereas you said, <laughs> "Give it to me." We, you know, this is bad. We are the revolver, and they're saying, "Give it to me." They are, they're the, they're, yeah, they're the fox telling the hen. They're like, "Just let me out of the cage. I just want to hang. I just want to help out. Just let me out of the cage." Um, how do you then approach these things? Electro thought, electroshock therapy, um, the racist eugenics, lobotomy, and now the 
you know, the, the, the big tuna, the biggest one of them all, the, the, the global's takeover of the world. When approaching these fights, do you have to first analyze yourself? Does it, does it carry over from therapy or is this a scale independent thing? You know, water at different levels, a water in, in this water bottle versus water at the size of the ocean, it moves different. There's different fluid dynamics versus like other things. It's, it's scale dependent where it looks the same at every, like a perfect fractal. Does this jump over to these fights or does it only work in therapy where the end, the mutual end goal is an increasing, uh, presence of love and of caring versus these are consciously malicious entities that don't seem like they have any intention it's not like the, the people at davos aren't coming to you saying i have all these evil desires to rule over people will you help me they, they don't have any desire to change do you have to analyze yourself when fighting these things or is it a different animal altogether well, I think that's the most interesting question I've ever been asked. And I don't think I've ever even said that on the air. It's that a big, a it's a, it's a it's scary a really question. Interesting question. It's a scary question. I always tell myself, I'm like, I should love everyone. And then I'm always like, well, what about Anthony Fauci? And I'm like, I don't know if I can. Well, then do I really love everyone? It's a, it's a, it's dividing by zero. If you don't have the answer, that's fine. It's a. <laughs> well, I have an answer to that one. I'm not okay. God. So I don't. Imagine that I love everyone. Yeah. Um, I uh, I understand that as a human being, my capacity to love grows weaker as the person is more far distant or more damaging. Mm. So um, I think that um, I leave that issue up to God, whether these people are going to hell I don't really believe in hell. I don't, you know, I don't have a complex. Uh, you're hearing my my religious views right now, and my 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 view of God is, you know, a loving creator. And mm -hmm. beyond that, I don't make much sense out of it. I just try to understand myself in relation to a loving creator. Sure. Um, uh, but everything I do in therapy comes into all these decision making. Because I never want to, for example, take risks that aren't helpful and aren't going to produce a good effect, that are going to hurt me, Ginger, my loved ones. Right. So, and we're taking we're taking uh, potentially fatal risks every day of our lives, Ginger and I, and um, we try to. Um, to think about we're honoring God, we're honoring love, we're honoring our principles. We are not trying to destroy certain people. Um, we don't we don't ever think of it that way. We think of it how do we how do we let the world know that what's going on here is wrong, and. Um, what can we do that we think is ethical? And a lot of people who are fighting are not thinking that they're being as dirty as the other side. Yeah. And I'm not even going to say that I let God judge them. Sure. I mean, literally, because if that's maybe it takes those people to take down those people. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I know how I want to live. And that and then that itself is a is a philosophical quicksand. You know, can you take down? 
you know, I think it was uh, the OSS and senior operations executive, the kind of the equivalent of black ops in the uh, in in World War Two Britain. Churchill said to them, uh, "This is ungentlemanly warfare," and I think his famous quote is, "Gentlemen, set Europe ablaze," because you can't. I think was it Gandhi? Was Gandhi alive when Hitler was alive? Didn't he write letters to Hitler about only you can stop this madness? That I don't know. That would be very interesting. He was alive, yes. There's a comedian, Duncan Trussell, who talked about that. And he's, you know, he's this hippie through yeah. and through. But he was like, I had a moment of realization that these flowery letters did not stop World War II. What stopped World War II was the white death of an atomic flash. And it's what you said about you might yeah. need these people to fight these people. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've, I've interviewed some Delta Force operators, tip of the spear guys. I'm yeah. very about love and meditation and but the reason why i know i'm able to exist in this place is because there are some pit bulls of human beings that you sick yeah. against these demons so that's a that's kind of a, a see the way it relates to therapy is you have to ask yourself who do you want to be in the context of your understanding of the world correct do you want to be the assassin who maybe would be required and maybe god would give him an order I don't know. Sure. Um, yeah, it's um, it's way beyond me and my pay well, my pay grade, <laughs> but I know how I want to be. Yeah, I know the people that I want to work with. We have a wonderful group of mostly Christian people. I don't know if I said already. I'm Jewish. Ginger's mm -hmm. Christian. Um, and that's where the therapy comes in in talking with myself with other people in the movement, and some people talk to me in the movement to get some help with some of these issues, the freedom movement, particularly the health freedom movement, and to be grounded in what we believe. And um, most of us would rather do what we believe and be taken out rather than try to specifically take out somebody else. It's just who we are. That's why we became physicians, hopefully. Not to be euthanasianists, <laughs> killing our patients, but to be always thinking about, you know, how do how do we make things better? What can we do to make things better? And to take the risks. And um, uh, and do, doing what we believe. The the best epitome of that I uh, I ever met was Zev Zelenko, who was the, hmm. became a dear friend, like a brother, before he died. And his his death was natural, folks. He was not murdered. But Zev Zelenko, who was Jewish, and uh, I introduced him as a prophet whenever I had him on my shows. Um, and he never denied it. <laughs> and um, he smiled. I, I won't say it myself, but if if you must. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he had no violence in him toward these people. And he had a deep understanding of the Holocaust and of slaughter and, and the relationship between the globalists and the Nazis. He had very clear, very clear notion that they were cut from all the same cloth, mm -hmm. just uh, changed different technologies, different superior, organizations. Superiority, inferiority, cl yeah. cl cleansing culture. Yeah. There's... So it does, the therapy stuff comes in all the time. It's been Ginger and I in our conversations it, all the time. It, you know, we're trying not to react impulsively. We're trying to be thoughtful. We're trying to think about not causing collateral damage to any of the people in the movement that we love and care about. Um, we're very wary of that. Um, 
we make our criticism of people laserly focused. It's not uh, happenstance. Uh, yeah. And in fact, it's really, you know, very, very carefully figure that out. Um, so it is very, very similar. It's just not acting on, on your own impulses, which can be violent or they can be fear, they can be anxiety. But then you bring in that loving gaze on the world and thinking, what do we want to do? And of course, we lose that and then we help each other get it back. And that's what I teach couples to do. You're going to lose your, um, what, what, I, what I'm fond of saying is, you know, one of you can kind of revert to, to childhood again, to being helpless and overwhelmed, but the other can't. So you're putting a lot of pressure on the other when you revert because if the other one reverts, you're both down the yeah. tubes um, and you'll go crashing as a, as a love relationship or a marriage. So uh, the best best thing is to always do what's so hard, which is to be more responsible than you think the other person's being. It's uh, <laughs> like what engineers say. They, they stupid proof things. They'll make an elevator and they'll say that the maximum capacity is 5,000 pounds, knowing that a bunch of drunk college kids are going to get on and it's going to be 8,000 pounds. Yeah. And secretly can actually hold 20,000 pounds. You, yeah. you kind of have to, it's the same thing with yeah. love. You have to almost mature proof things or immature proof things. Always yeah. try to be far more mature than you think is maybe even needed. Well, that's a very well said. And I think that's, um, I could even maybe say that to some of my clients. I might, might cite you, Tommy, and say, you know, you got to be far more mature than you think you want to be. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to cite me. If you cite me, they'll find out my name and then it, it'll lose all meaning. So you just, <laughs> just just use my initials like I'm some like I'm some dead author. Be like, the great you know, TC, you, you know, TC at all said in his early paper, just just kind of throw it under the rug. Um, <laughs> to, to move back towards what let's you let's finish said. up in about sure. five minutes. Sure. OK, well, this is this is what I wanted. To, I didn't I didn't even realize. I've kept you an hour or 10 minutes longer than I said. That's how I know it's a good one. Um, it doesn't even need to be five minutes. It's more so this final thought. And I think it's important of what you said is um, you can't look at it as you're taking down someone. And although we, we both agree that might even be necessary, that might be how, you know, evil is fought is with your own evil. Well, and in another circumstance, that's what I might do. I mean, um, sure. As you they're said, taking, they're taking me to a camp and I have a gun. Um, you, you might have to be what in someone else's eyes is a radical. And it's like, well, now it's self-preservation. But yeah, but go ahead. Or before, or doing, we, before ahead. we reach that point is you said that you have to look at it as you're helping someone else and not hurt. So it's not that we are out to hurt a Fauci, a Klaus Schwab, a Bill Gates, a whoever you want, name name your demon. Yeah. It's rather that, much like in the book, you often bring up the the seatbelt in the airplane uh, metaphor, right? Help yourself before you can, or not seatbelt, uh, sorry, uh, air, uh, oxygen mask. Yeah. Help yourself before you help others so that you may help others, right? All it takes is one person with a mask on yeah. to wake up someone else and then it's a, a rippling effect. In that very loosely, if I could tag them, together it would be that you're not out against the globalists but rather you are for the freedom of the masses they i'm not out to squash you but i am out to protect mm -hmm. them and it may it may appear that i am fighting these people 
but that's not it's not putting them down it is it's not a hatred of them it's a love for these and that's a that's a that's a delicate line to walk but i think that is maybe the the closest the closest we could get to does therapy transfer over to when you are you know going up against yeah, these well does your christian beliefs transfer over or your jewish beliefs it's all very similar to me i thought of a of a something very important that i really really talk about in public which was probably the experience um that made me the reformer um i was raised this i have mentioned occasionally in recent years um, I was basically raised by a black child, 16-year-old girl, brought from a farm in the deep south. I was a second child, um, and um, my mother just couldn't handle it, I guess. So she she brought the second boy, and um, she brought this girl up basically to raise me. I don't know that that's what she thought in her own head, but that's what happened. And um, she was with us for four years. And I was so deeply um, melded with her rather than my mother. That was the way I came to remember her was my mother was a, dr was a dream of my mother standing over my crib. And I was probably four because there wasn't a lot of room. And where I was living with <laughs> in a small room with this young woman growing up. And both of us growing up, and um, and she said that I I loved, and she was the N word. You love that more than you love mm -hmm. your own mother, and that's when I remembered her. Wow! Because <laughs> I was trying to think, who is my mother talking about? Who in God's name would say that? <laughs> and who was it? And that, what you know? And it didn't surprise me that my mother would say something like that. Sure. What what surprised me is I had no idea she was talking about. Well, I, I figured it out eventually. It came to me through meditating on it, thinking mm -hmm. on it. And um, and I met her eventually, com confirmed the whole story. And um, so I always had a tremendous, um, I've lost you. No, no, that's uh, the camera cut out. I, I don't know what's going on with that. Keep talking. I can hear you. Okay. We can finish up. Uh, this will be good. You're in the dark with us, folks. Here we are. We're, We're finishing up switch, with the Switch with to the camera. Oh, it's still, still not working? No, there it is. All right, we're back. back. I've never seen that on that camera. It said overheating. Oh <laughs> That's my the God. first. <laughs> well, it's listening. It must be listening. It's listening. It's getting hot under the collar. These are very intense emotional conversations. The, yeah, yeah. the camera's getting a little worse. Well, I'm going to end with a very intense emotional thing here. So when I started to, you know, being a psychotherapist, I'm reading psychotherapy books and stuff like that. I'm, I've written two couple of papers very young been writing papers since uh, my training and I'm writing uh, a paper about um, non-authoritarian treatment, how to do it, stuff like that, published. And um, I learn and I read in the newspaper that they're doing these lobotomies. So I act and I'm at a very prestigious place at the time. I'm doing my therapy at the, at, um, the Washington Psychiatric Institute and um, with very older men around me. Um, and um, I asked to get all the papers from these guys at the conference that they're doing lobotomy papers. I'm a young person, really, young doctor, really interested in all this stuff. That was true. And I get all the papers and I track down and there's one set 
of, of papers out of the University of Mississippi in Jackson where the children are as young as age four or five years old. He's putting multiple electrodes in their heads, letting them sit there. Later, I would get the descriptions. The kids walk around the wards permanently with these braids of wires coming out of the back of their heads. And he not only is stimulating their brains to see what happens, he's then burning out areas of their brains to see what happens. And he's this big surgeon at the uh, University of Jackson. He's director of the Department of Neurosurgery, O.J. Simpson, Simpson. <laughs> maybe a similar O.J. Andy. I've not made that slip before. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I contact, a, I find a, a, an African-American attorney who's uh, involved in civil rights down there. And I call him and ask him if he could go in the institution to see what kind of race these kids are, because it's, uh, you never leave this out of, of the medical reports. There's no mention of their race. He says, I can tell you now they're all black. It's a, this is a... Uh, segregated institution and he would later go and meet some of the nurses and give me some information and um, I remember around that time having a nightmare that I was a little black child entirely normal for me to be think of that from my background I'm a little black child mm -hmm. and I they've got they're burning holes in my head and I can smell it and I woke up and where it fits so poignantly is I wasn't thinking I hate O.J. Andy. I was thinking I'm a little black child. I got to save the little black children. Mm. And I've never had that clarity before today. This has been like a little bit of a therapy session for me. I've never had that clarity on that's a dramatic difference. It's a very big difference. It's not against him. It's for them. It's for them. And you helped me make that distinction. And um, the, 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 the stunning, interesting thing was that um, I called the department director of psychiatry. And I said, you don't know me. I'm a psychiatrist. Did you know the Washington School of Psychiatry? He said, yeah, I've talked a little bit. And he said, um, do, you, do you know that O.J. Andy, do you know him? Yes, yeah. Um, I said, he's operating on little black children from a local segregated institution. He's putting electrodes in his head, burning holes in his head, their heads, and so on. He said, oh, my God. This is the only time this happened in my whole career with a, with a colleague. They're yeah. so self-protective. He said, oh, my God, I had no idea he was doing that. He said, I'm going to do something. Oh, and wow. he never talked to me about it again. And what he did was he set up a committee to evaluate all psychosurgery and Andy never operated again. He did it. And um, and it, I'm thinking it was probably because I didn't call him and say, I hate OJ. I, I, you were thinking that. What an, yeah. what an amazing thing. The self-preserving career, as, as we all are, right? It's how does this help me? And if it's going to hurt me, I'm certainly not going to do it. You you come from a place of love and what an odd thing is voluntarily without not even solicited he does something yeah That's... he's a good man he, he uh, because he, he had to know that was a high risk thing to impose himself like that on a colleague sure but what... um no one else has ever done it that i know of um i can think of a couple of somewhat similar but not so personal as that not so okay i hear you it's kind of like Jay Glenn Bell, the senator. He went, you know, that's immoral. I'll do what can I do to help you? 
Well, sir, you could help me set up a psychosurgery commission. You said, okay. What a fascinating manifestation, though, of of letting go and coming from a place of not hating OJ, but loving these victims. How it immediately, I mean, like lightning, he goes and does something. You probably never would have got that through if you picked up and said, I hate this mother beep and i'm gonna yeah, beep yeah. and you now i'm get... recording this phone call and if you don't do something you're gonna go on trial what what a wild thing to just come from a place of peace and it yeah, and i was very young at that point so i was i had it under pretty good control not perfect yeah, yeah. no that's perfect. i think that was a beautiful story i think that's <clears throat> what, what well a... you helped me understand that story well Bless your book you. Well, your book is the reason why we're having this conversation. So bless you. It's it's coming full <laughs> circle. We're having this because of your book. So it's it's all it's a point. It's we're playing tennis. We're playing tennis <laughs> with emotions and love. It's just going back go. and forth. There you go. Well, I think I think that was a perfect way to uh, a perfect note to end this episode on. Well, I'll say goodbye to your audience. I'm sure they're really to be your audience. They're probably really amazing people. Let me know what kind of response you get. Absolutely. Well, I will send you the link when it's up. Um, well, it is up live, but then, you know, I'll send you the link anyway. Yeah, and, this has um, all been live. Yeah. Live, folks. Yeah. Live. Yeah. It's live. Yeah. We don't, we're not making this as you can no tell. No editing going to happen. None. You, as you can tell, the, the camera shut down. I've, ha I've never had that. That camera's more expensive than this computer. I've never seen it say overheated. That makes no sense. But as you can tell, it's live. We wouldn't change to this angle. Um, but Dr. Bregan, I will send you this link. And uh, and, and that book title. Yes, okay, sir. I'll see you oh, yes, again. Oh uh, yes, uh, Charlie and Dottie Duke's book, uh, Moonwalker. I'll send that to you. And yes, I would love to talk to you again. We will get that scheduled. Okay. Thank you so much, sir. God bless everybody.